Good morning. In today's headlines, President Biden heads to Israel this week to demonstrate the United States' steadfast support for the country in the face of Hamas's brutal terrorist attack. We have the details. The House of Representatives will vote on the next speaker today. But does Congressman Jim Jordan have enough momentum to get the gavel? We ask House representatives for their takes. An information war for public opinion is taking shape in Gaza as Hamas deters civilians from evacuating. Israel is ticking names off its list of terrorist threats. Russian President Vladimir Putin is in Beijing today to attend China's Belt and Road Forum. We speak to an expert to find the connection between Russia, China and the Israel-Hamas war. Thousands marched in Philadelphia to show support to Israel as the war enters its second week. We bring you a report from the event. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, October 17th. Yes, and Evelyn, Israel's looming ground invasion, it comes after the nation took a shock to its national psyche. With more Israelis dying in a single day, 1,300 during the Hamas terrorist attacks, than any day since the Holocaust. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, but this seems to be pretty broad support for um, across Israel's political spectrum as well. Yeah, for the war. I mean, that's it's support from liberals who are very sympathetic to the Palestinians. Right. right. Um, good input, but we're starting out today with some big news about President Joe Biden. He will make a high-stakes visit to Israel tomorrow as the country battles Hamas terrorists. The trip comes as the House Foreign Affairs Committee is drafting legislation to authorize U.S. military force, quote, in the event it's necessary. After meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the White House says Biden will travel to Jordan to meet with King Abdullah, Egyptian President Sisi, and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. The news of the trip comes as Hamas terrorists now say they have between 200 and 250 hostages. Biden's visit is expected to delay Israel's ground invasion of Gaza. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken discussed the visit on Monday. He remarked on some of the objectives of the trip. Those include reaffirming the United States' solidarity with Israel and its ironclad commitment to Israel's security. Blinken also said the U.S. and Israel have agreed to develop a plan that will enable humanitarian aid to reach civilians in Gaza, including the possibility of creating areas to help keep civilians out of harm's way. President Biden will again make clear, as he's done unequivocally since Hamas's slaughter of more than 1,400 people, including at least 30 Americans, that Israel has the right and indeed the duty to defend its people from Hamas and other terrorists and to prevent future attacks. If Hamas in any way blocks humanitarian assistance from reaching civilians, including by seizing the aid itself, we'll be the first to condemn it and we will work to prevent it from happening again. We welcome the government of Israel's commitment to work on this plan. The president very much looks forward to discussing it further when he's here on Wednesday. And U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has ordered 2,000 troops to prepare for a potential deployment to Israel, shortening their prepare-to-deploy status from 96 to 24 hours. A U.S. Marine Rapid Response Force is also headed to the waters of Israel, joining a growing number of warships in the area. The U.S. has stated that American boots will not be on the ground and will likely play a supporting role in the conflict. 
The show of U.S. force is to deter escalating violence as organizations like Hezbollah threaten to join the war. President Biden is set to visit Israel and neighboring countries and join Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who says his visit comes at a critical moment for Israel, the region, and for the world. Now, to find out more about this, we're bringing in Arie Lightstone, a former senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Good to have you back, Ariel. Now, first, let's talk about Biden's visit. As mentioned, what message does it send? Well, I think it sends the ironclad connection in between the United States of America and Israel. And I'm optimistic that that message will continue as he goes to visit the other heads of state. That's the most important part of the visit. Hmm. What kind of message do you expect him to carry there to the other states outside of Israel? Well, I think what he needs to carry is actually different than what Secretary Blinken stated he was going to do, which is creating humanitarian pathways within Gaza. That, to a great degree, is not possible. He should be demanding that the Egyptians allow every innocent civilian to go out through Egypt, and he should be demanding of the neighboring countries, or at least the region, to take care of those civilians until a different status can be determined for them. That's the most reasonable way to save the most amount of lives. Hmm. Now, let's. what does he want to achieve on this trip, President Biden? What, is, what do you expect to come from it, though? Well, ironically enough, I think the greatest success of the trip we will never know, which is he is showing up here to tell Iran and Hezbollah to stay out of further engagement. And therefore, by him showing up optimistically, that will send a message that those fronts should not open and Israel will just have a front with Hamas and Gaza. That will be the greatest achievement. Certainly, if he can uh, bring hostages back to Israel and back to America, that would be incredibly exciting. Understood. Now let's talk about, let's touch on a slightly different topic. We have seen some protests and also um, including progressive Jewish groups that say Israel is committing genocide in Gaza or, you know, that the language used to talk about it is genocidal. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, my thoughts are that they have lost any moral high ground that they can possibly have. They are not protesters. They are actually rallying in support of those who rape, pillage, and murder babies. Let's just be very clear what it is that they are rooting for and what it is that they are hoping will happen. When they say from the river to the sea, which has been said since 1987 when Hamas was founded, that means the death and expulsion of every Jew, man, woman, and child within Israel. And if you support that, that is very clear. You are on the side of evil. If you are against that, you are on the side of good. So that part is simple. Israel does not commit genocide. That's insane. And anybody who articulates that has lost not only the moral high ground, but has lost the intellectual high ground to even be part of a conversation. Israel strikes at military targets, and Hamas places their civilians in military targets in order to encourage civilian deaths. Hamas is guilty of a double war crime. The more we call it out, the more we will protect those civilians. The more we obfuscate and confuse the issue, the more civilians will die. Hmm. Understood. Now, I also want to um, touch on the hostage video released uh, of Mia Shem just uh, just recently. So it showed her being treated for an injury, and she asks to get out of um, Gaza as fast as possible. First, what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are is that every one of the hostages, and we don't even know how many they are, we don't know all of their nationalities, we don't know all of their health situation, need to be released immediately without any preconditions. This was a violent, horrendous act, 
there is no ability for anybody to negotiate with these terrorists. They must release the hostages, and then there can be a conversation about what happens with Gaza. But these are war crimes of enormous magnitude, and we need to get these hostages home in every possible way. We need to lean on every power that we possibly can. We should begin with Qatar, where the leaders of Hamas are currently stationed, and help Qatar use every piece of their influence to get every one of these hostages home. And why do you think this, was, this video was released now? Is this maybe a way of pushing negotiations forward? I don't think it's a question of negotiating. I think it's a question of preparing their own military stance. I, I don't give a lot of credibility to people who came in, murdered, raped, and beheaded children in terms of what types of negotiations they want to have. We have to come from a stance of who are these people and what are they trying to accomplish? They are trying to accomplish the worst type of psychological warfare imaginable, and we need to counter it with being strong and resolute in what the response would be. Got it. Um, thank you so much, Area Lightstone. I think your message has been clear today. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And a top U.S. general has landed in Israel ahead of an expected ground assault on Hamas. U.S. General Michael Carrilla is head of U.S. Central Command. He told Reuters he will ensure Israel has what it needs to defend itself. Carrilla is also expected to outline U.S. military support aimed at preventing an expansion of the Israel-Hamas conflict. The Israeli Air Force says it killed a senior Hamas leader yesterday. Osama al-Mazini was head of the Hamas Shura Council and a key negotiator for Hamas prisoner swaps. An IAF also found the taking out of, also reported taking out a Hamas military headquarters and a bank used to fund terrorist activity in Gaza. Israel Defense Forces say they are continuing to strike Hezbollah targets in Lebanon. IDF observation troops in northern Israel killed four terrorists this morning as they tried to infiltrate the security fence. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has, uh, tells us more about the situation unfolding in Israel. IDF shared this footage Tuesday morning from the security fence with Lebanon, another attempt by terrorists to plant an explosive thwarted. As Israel fights to maintain security along its borders, an information war is also being waged for public opinion. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, or UNRWA, is calling for clean drinking water, saying Gaza is running dry. IDF says UNRWA deleted its tweets reporting stolen fuel and medical equipment. The amount of fuel stolen is enough to power Gaza's water desalination for six days. I repeat, for six days. Hamas is holding the people of Gaza hostage, cowardly, using them as human shields. Hamas is at war against humanity, not just Israel. They terrorize Jews and Arabs. They seek deaths of Israelis and Palestinians. The Israel Defense Forces will destroy Hamas for the sake of Israel, Gaza, and the entire world. With Hamas attempting to stop civilians from leaving northern Gaza, IDF estimates around 400,000 people have yet to heed their evacuation warning. IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conriquez says he hopes Palestinian people will do what's best for their own sake and not the political purposes of Hamas. Conriquez told News Nation that if people don't listen, they will have to move in the interest of self-preservation. We're helping. We're helping people move south. We are allowing a corridor, and we have been trying to incentivize people to go south by explaining to them 
that this is the right thing and the smart thing to do, not to fall victim to, uh, to Hamas, but we have not put an official uh, deadline on it yet. Conricus on X-Spaces said although many were quick to blame Israel for an explosion on an evacuation route, forensic experts have raised questions after examining dash cam images from the blast. And um, everything should point, for anybody who doesn't have a clear bias against Israel, should point to the fact that there was a, a, an act here by probably Hamas wanting to bomb or otherwise stop a convoy, have civilian casualties, perhaps instill fear in the civilian uh, not to try to evacuate, and then, of course, try to blame Israel for it. Conrica says efforts by Hamas are having a delaying effect, but that he thinks over time people will come to understand evacuation is the best option if they don't want to be affected by the warfare. The more we speak about it and the more the world recognizes what Hamas is doing, they'll be less confident doing it and uh, abusing their own civilians as, uh, as human shields. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Israeli troops are lining up with tanks and other military equipment near the Gaza Strip border, and it appears that a much-anticipated ground offensive against Hamas terrorists could happen at any moment. A warning, some of the following footage may be disturbing for some viewers. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Israel has been launching relentless airstrikes on Hamas targets since the terrorist group attacked Israeli civilians over a week ago. At the same time, Hamas has continued firing rockets into Israel. And now, over a week into the war, Israel is gearing up for a ground offensive into the Gaza Strip to destroy the Hamas terrorist group. But ultimately, this is going to be uh, men against men, uh, small groups against small groups. It's, it's simply going to be a hard and bloody battle. I spoke with Rick Fisher, senior fellow at the International Assessment and Strategy Center, about the upcoming ground offensive, and he described it as nothing short of a meat grinder. The terrain of Gaza is, is going to be very difficult. Uh, ruined buildings everywhere, bombed out buildings, Israeli units trying to maneuver uh, Hamas forces appearing out of nowhere, yes, appearing out of tunnels, uh, but uh, largely uh, emerging from, from ruins. Uh, this, is, this is a battle that favors the sniper. And as for the possible occupation of Gaza to prevent another terrorist attack on Israel, Fisher said this. There is really no other way for Israel to prevent a similar occurrence other than to occupy Gaza build a new government and to spend probably a generation uh, building a citizenry that understands uh, the rule of law, understands the obligations of free people, and understands the necessity to live in peace with neighbors. This is in sharp contrast to President Biden's recent comments that it would be a mistake for Israel to occupy Gaza. And amid the war's smoke and horrors, Fisher highlighted a significant behind-the-scenes player. Overlaying this whole war has been the support of China. China's political, commercial, and military and technology support of Iran over the last 40 years has enabled Iran to turn the proxies of Hezbollah and Hamas into weapons able to wage war against Israel. 
with the attack of Hamas, China has basically come clean. It is now all but a declared enemy of the state of Israel. Fisher explained that this war proves that the Chinese Communist Party wants to destroy freedom in the Middle East. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, GOP nominee Jim Jordan is facing an uphill climb in today's House Speaker vote. Does he have enough momentum? Hear what some of his colleagues had to say. Also in Washington, a federal judge says former President Trump is not above the law. Then she ordered him to stop talking about certain individuals. Major drug stores across the U.S. are facing bankruptcy and store closures. We speak to the host of NTD Business to find out why after the break. Welcome back. On Capitol Hill, House Republicans are preparing to take their vote for House Speaker Public. Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio is the elected nominee, but it remains to be seen if he has the votes to secure the gavel. Jordan picked up support from four holdouts previously opposed to him yesterday. They are Representatives Mike Rogers, Ann Wagner, Ken Calvert, and Vern Buchanan. Jordan is still facing an uphill battle to be elected speaker. He can only afford to lose four Republicans if every member votes. At least six Republicans are expected to vote against him. Jordan sent a letter to his GOP colleagues yesterday calling for unity. He emphasized the need to refrain from internal fighting, saying the party's shared principles outweigh any divisions. NTD spoke with House representatives for opinions on Jordan's chances. I felt good walking into the conference. I feel even better now. It's not going to take 17 rounds. Okay. I think we'll take a very few rounds and probably uh, have Jim Jordan as our speaker in the next two days. His plan last week was that we are going to put forward a, a clean uh, continuing resolution. I, I, I'm still concerned, but I'm prepared to, to put a vote for our nominee. The House Speaker vote starts at noon Eastern time today. Yes, and a new gag order for former President Trump in the federal election case. Judge Tanya Chutkin said Trump does not have the right to say and do exactly what he pleases. Entity's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the details. A heated round of arguments on Monday pitted a presidential candidate's First Amendment rights against a judge's duty to preserve the integrity of court proceedings. The judge, Tanya Chutkin, sided with the Department of Justice in a limited order that restricts former President Trump from making public statements that attack witnesses, prosecutors, or court staff. Chutkin is presiding over the case against Trump for allegedly interfering in the 2020 election. Her order came after a two-hour hearing in which the DOJ vigorously argued that Trump is unfairly influencing the jury pool with posts he makes on social media. They asked that the gag order limit what he could comment on related to the case. Trump's attorneys argued that the request violates his First Amendment rights and interferes with his presidential campaign efforts. In a narrowly tailored order, Chutkin focused on restricting comments Trump made on social media about participants in the case that could affect potential jurors. She did not block Trump from making comments about Washington, D.C. or criticism of the government, including the Biden administration and the DOJ. The judge said she would consider sanctions if Trump violated the order. 
She refused to delay the March 4 trial date until after the election, saying this trial will not yield to the election cycle. Trump said on Truth Social that he plans to appeal the ruling. He also commented at a rally in Iowa saying he'll be the only politician in history who's not allowed to criticize people. The Supreme Court has allowed the Biden administration to continue regulating ghost guns. Those are kits available for online purchase. They enable users to construct fully operational firearms. The court's brief order yesterday grants the Justice Department's request to wipe away a lower court order and allow the regulations to remain in effect. This is while a legal challenge brought by firearm manufacturers continues to play out in the lower courts. There were no noted dissidents to the order. In August, the court sided with the Biden administration in a challenge a group of manufacturers brought. It allowed the regulations to remain in effect. A district court judge based in Texas later stepped in to exempt two manufacturers, Black Hawk Manufacturing Group and Defense Distributed. The latest ruling means the two sellers must abide by the rules now. A little business update for you. CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid are closing thousands of stores across the U.S. That's right. And here with us live to discuss this is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, hi. What's behind all these closures for the major pharmacy chains? Well, Evelyn, I, I think there isn't just one reason here that's leading to the closures. Uh, in fact, I think it's a combination of a variety of factors and moving parts, you know, all working together to make this happen. Uh, so let me just point some of the potential reasons out for you. Um, but let's keep in mind that no one reason here is to blame for everything. So yesterday I, I updated you on a right AIDS bankruptcy, but actually uh, this reflects long-term struggles in the retail uh, pharmacy industry in general. Uh, the majority of drugstore sales uh, come from filing prescriptions, but their profits from that have declined uh, in recent years. And as well, the front end of drugstores, you know, uh, where they sell snacks and household staples, also face some pressure. Uh, CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid are eliminating some locations because they're also facing rising competition for these items uh, from places like Amazon, uh, big box stores with pharmacies like Walmart and Dollar General in rural areas. And of course, uh, let's not forget that theft, of course, has uh, become a problem for stores uh, in some locations as well. And one possible reason, uh, and this, this is the last one I'll mention here, that pharmacies are closing stores. Uh, it could be because they may have overexpanded in the past. Yeah, we've seen retail theft rise up to even $100 billion in a year in the United States. And then, of course, all the looting that happened recently in Philly. So that's putting a lot of strain on them. But, Don, can you give us an idea of the scope of the closures and what impact this has had on Americans? Right. So uh, for the impact, uh, you know, I'll cite a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. But also keep in mind that the scope of the impact probably goes beyond this study. But, you know, what it found was that the loss of a retail pharmacy can leave a void, especially for lower income households, because uh, roughly one out of every eight pharmacies closed between 2009 and 2015 actually disproportionately affected uh, low-income neighborhoods. And Kevin, as for uh, the number of closures, um, so the largest U.S. chain, CVS, closed 244 stores between 
2018 and 2020. And then in 2021, it announced plans to close 900 more stores by 2024. So that's right around the corner. And then Wal Walgreens said that in 2019, it's going to close around 200 stores. And in June, announced another 150 store closures. And as I mentioned yesterday, Rite Aid uh, will reportedly close roughly 400 to 500 of its stores. Wow. But they're just so convenient. It is, but you know what's more convenient nowadays? And I think one thing that a lot of experts are looking into is now digitalization, right? How were they able to keep up? If not, then of course, you know, Amazon. We just heard Amazon, Walmart, Walmart were, were big reasons. Yeah. So it seems like that could And if be you're buying online, they don't have the overhead, the right. brick and mortar. Exactly. Well, Don, thank you so much for your updates today. As always, good to see you. Yeah, it's always great to be here, Evelyn. Yeah, and you know, something interesting is that experts are saying now that there might even be a smaller, leaner Rite Aid that produces after the reconstruction following this bankruptcy. Right. Well, let's see. Maybe, um, you know, think things adapt, people adapt, and new innovations come up. So yeah. let's keep an eye you out. You got to think big or sometimes think small. <laughs> All right. Russian President Vladimir Putin is visiting Beijing and the U.S. steps up its show of force in Israel. We speak to an expert about the overlap between Israel and Ukraine. Welcome back. Uh, Belgian authorities say a gunman suspected of killing two Swedish nationals died after being shot by police this morning. The Belgian prime minister says the suspect was from Tunisia and was living in Belgium illegally. He called the shooting a brutal terrorist attack. The suspect called himself an ISIS supporter. The two victims killed in the attack were Swedish nationals in town to attend a soccer match. A third victim was wounded in central Brussels. Prosecutors said the alleged attacker mentioned targeting Swedes in the video. The shooting came at a time of heightened security concerns linked to the Israel-Hamas conflict. Although prosecutors say there was no evidence the attack was connected to the conflict, the shooting of the suspect came after an intense manhunt throughout the city. Here is a witness describing the scene. I arrived on my scooter parked just behind the police van there, and when I arrived, I heard the first gunshot. I didn't think much of it then, and then I saw a couple running away and wondered what was happening. Then I saw a white car that accelerated from that direction. Each car that drove past accelerated, and I thought that was odd. And that's when I saw the assailant enter the building. He shot twice towards a man, and the man fell to the ground. I saw him fall because I was nearby. I could see everything that was happening inside. I stayed there. I was frozen. I couldn't move. I'm still shivering because of what happened. And then the man came back and shot another bullet, and he came out. And when he came out, another man came towards me and said, get away, run if you want to stay alive, get away. The Belgian justice minister said in a news conference that the suspected attacker was known to police in connection with human smuggling. He unsuccessfully sought asylum in Belgium in November 2019. This morning, the EU's foreign policy chief pressed for Europeans to step up their security and defense. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping are set to meet in Beijing this week. The two are likely to discuss the Israel-Hamas war, according to a Kremlin spokesman. Both Moscow and Beijing have criticized Israel and called for a ceasefire. 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine started just three weeks after the pair's last meeting in China's capital in 2022. Taliban officials and ministers are also in Beijing for China's Belt and Road Forum. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad visited China last month, a few weeks before the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas attacked Israel. And at the same time, some say Taiwan is getting spooked, with some now saying they're looking for India to help deter a Chinese invasion instead. To dive deeper into this, we're bringing in retired Navy officer Lieutenant Stephen Rogers. Good to have you, Lieutenant, as well, always. Well, pleasure being here. Thank you now, very much. Now, first, let's talk about Putin in China. What is the significance of his visit this time? What we're seeing is the birth of a new evil empire. That includes China, Russia, and Iran. That's obviously backing Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, they're all going to serve each other's purposes. Uh, look, China and Russia, uh, I think in the long term, are not going to be committed uh, friends as we see now. But uh, of course, China's probably thinking about, well, maybe now could be the time to strike Taiwan. If they do, they deplete U.S. forces uh, for Putin. Putin, he's involved in Ukraine. He depletes forces that would go to Taiwan. And then you have the situation in uh, the Mideast where U.S. forces would be committed to defend Israel. So they're all serving each other's purpose with regard to their goals and objectives in taking Taiwan, in taking Ukraine, and in taking Israel. Mm. Yeah, clearly two sides there. Now, also uh, on the Israel-Hamas war, how much help is, how involved is the U.S. in that war, and how much help would um, U.S. be able to send? Well, at the moment, we're trying to limit that help to non-combatant troops in Israel. Uh, however, I could tell you, uh, as soon as Iran gets involved, if they execute uh, a military strike the way they're talking, I believe you're going to see the full weight of U.S. military come down uh, on Iran and get very, very involved in the Mideast. So uh, we're committed to Israel. We're committed to its survival, and uh, we're going to have no choice but to step in in the event Iran begins to uh, create military strikes in the region. And in that event, what about Ukraine then? How, do, how would Israel and Ukraine's needs overlap? Would there, would there still be the possibility of U.S. being in Ukraine as well, or is that off the table? I believe that'll be off the table. Uh, I've said all along, and many have said all along, Ukraine is Europe's problem. It's NATO's problem. Let them deal with it. It's in their backyard. We have no uh, national security interest in Ukraine, uh, but we have a tremendous national security interest in Israel, our closest ally. So I believe that uh, our involvement in Ukraine will be depleted and our involvement in Israel will increase rapidly. Mm. But what about now at this moment? How stretched are U.S. military resources being in Israel and Ukraine at the same time? Well, we're very stretched. Uh, with regard to uh, the uh, aircraft carriers, for example, we have three of our largest carriers in the Mediterranean. Uh, we uh, have uh, recruitments very low. Retirement is high in the U.S. military. Ammunition is low. But I believe the resilience of the American people will come through. I believe even as you and I are having this conversation, uh, there's a, a, a massive effort to get the American people involved in helping with munitions, helping with uh, supplying uh, any U.S. troops that may be involved, and also, uh, no doubt about it, supporting Israel. And like just mentioned, that Taiwan is getting a bit jittery. So what are your thoughts on U.S.'s show of force in the war so far, uh, or multiple wars so far, and its role in a possible invasion um, into Taiwan by China? 
Yeah, that's going to be a very difficult uh, situation that uh, the United States will be put in. We're going to have to really depend on China, maybe depend on uh, other countries who will step up and help defend Taiwan. We should not abandon Taiwan. Uh, they've been with us a long time. But uh, we're in a tough situation here in the United States. And hopefully, somehow, some way, dip diplomacy will prevail. But uh, I keep that, uh, you know, not very hopeful with diplomacy at this point. Right. Um, but how effective is U.S. Uh, deterrence power then at this point? And, and not only considering China, right? Also, um, with Iran um, saying that they possibly would be joining the war in Israel, are we, how, well, how effective is the U.S. deterrence power? Well, not at this point uh, very much. Uh, look, we've got aircraft carriers out of the Mediterranean, and of course you have those carriers there to be a deterrence to Iran. But uh, these, these people are killers. Uh, the, the, the Iranian government is hell-bent on destroying Israel. So uh, the deterrence is uh, not even effective where we've got our firepower. So not much of a deterrence right now. And the only deterrence that may work is if we use our military force effectively. That may uh, send a strong message that the Iranian government uh, the CCP uh, better back off because they could be next. Understood. Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, thank you so much for your insights today. Well, thank you very much. Stay with us. Why is Hamas attacking Israel now? We hear from an analyst on a few possible reasons, including a desire to damage progress made in the Abraham Accords. A key priority for the Israeli military, figuring out Hamas's underground tunnel system is reportedly longer than the Grand Canyon and maybe where the hostages are. Great to have you back with us. We now hear a perspective on potential reasons why the Hamas terrorists launched their attack on Israel at this time. These reasons range from supposed Israeli and American weakness to trapping Israel into overreacting and disrupting Israel's energy business. We zoom in on the concept of disrupting progress made in the Abraham Accords and actions by the Biden administration. Take a look. Please welcome James Gorey, the author of The China Crisis, Epic Times contributor and blogger who runs The Banana Republican. Thank you for coming on the show today, James. My pleasure. Good to be here. In your outline, you mentioned that the reason for Hamas's attack, partly, is to disrupt the expanding peace between Israel and the Islamic nations. Can you explain this? Sure. If you look at the, just a little while ago, maybe last week or so, um, Benjamin Netanyahu was talking about the, the new Middle East that he was creating, that you know, the Israel was fashioning with these normalization between Israel and, and, and Saudi Arabia and, and Bahrain in prior, in prior uh, sequences. Um, uh, you know, the, lots of the UAE, lots of trade, lots of tremendous amounts of opportunities for, for peace and the economic dividend that comes with it. So, you know, in those, in that context, the Palestinian issue was, 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 was irrelevant. Um, Hamas could see the Palestinian issue of, of, of uh, combating Israel as becoming just a side issue. And uh, the only way to really break that expanding peace was to do what they did, in, in their opinion, at least. So uh, that has certainly fractured the, or threatens to fracture the, the normalization process um, due to Israel's reaction, I think, um, which is not un unjustified, by the way, but it certainly doesn't look very good. Uh, poor optics for uh, for the Arabic side. 
The Trump-brokered Abraham Accords were definitely a step forward for that region in terms of unity, but now we are seeing after this Hamas attack that Iran is calling on Arab countries now to confront Israel over their response, and then also Arab ministers are even urging Israel to resume talks about a two-state solution. So this is definitely playing into that concept that you have there. Can you expand on this a little more? Sure. So the two-state solution has always been there. That's, that was there at the outset in 1948. It's, you know, the Oslo Accords it came very close to it. Uh, the problem is the two-state solution isn't part of Hamas's plans. And so uh, Hamas's goal with this, the way they attacked uh, the, the Israeli concert goers and so forth, that wasn't a military perspective and in terms of capturing something militarily valuable. That was a psychological that was uh, attack. That was an attack against Netanyahu. They, he knew he had to either be remembered for that or be remembered for eradicating Hamas, the people who did it. So, I mean, there's a lot of psychology here on both sides. So, James, just briefly here, your point six was the weakness of America. We understand the controversy surrounding the unfreezing of $6 billion in Iranian funds. It's unclear what Iran's role specifically is in this. And the Biden administration has made it very clear that they're going to support Israel sending aircraft carriers and with Blinken statements. So can you back up your claim here? Sure. The, the fact that America, the Biden administration, left uh, Afghanistan in such a hurry, in such a disastrous and embarrassing and humiliating way, leaving behind billions, if not tens of billions, of in military equipment to Islamists, people who hate us. Um, that was a, certainly a humiliating defeat. Uh, the very fact that uh, that the Biden administration has said, "Look, we're going to we're going to we're going to pay Iran six billion dollars for some hostages," where the prior administration didn't have to pay any money to get hostages back. Um, it's it looks like uh, the Biden administration is as weak and willing to negotiate and doesn't stand on principle. Uh, that's 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 the message you're sending to the Middle East. And so, you know, the old saying, that Arabic saying, a falling camel attracts many knives. Uh, they view Biden, Biden's America as a falling camel, unfortunately. As far as and Iran... Blinken has made it very clear that that money can only be used for medical, et cetera, reasons, whereas Iran seems to think otherwise. Now, James Gorey, author of The China Crisis, it was really great talking with you. My pleasure. Thank you. Hamas's massive secret underground tunnel system, a key obstacle to Israel's upcoming land invasion. One of Israel's main objectives will be to locate these tunnels. NTD's Faye Quarter talks with a former senior Israeli government official for details. Hamas's intricate network of underground tunnels, a huge advantage for Hamas and a huge threat to Israel's military in its goal to wipe out the terrorist group. Hamas terrorists, instead of like confronting the Israeli army, are fleeing to the tunnels. They are taking refuge in the tunnels. They are also taking refuge in the fact that the tunnels are deliberately dig in a massively populated areas. Avi Melamed is a former Israeli senior official on Arab affairs. He says Hamas built these tunnels in populated areas intentionally in order to use civilians as human shields. Some tunnel entrances are in stores and apartments. They run under schools, homes, and even mosques. Hamas can use the tunnels to hide, launch surprise attacks, and smuggle items. Some of them are so wide that a truck could go in those tunnels. Some of those tunnels, believe it or not, have elevators. Some of those tunnels are with air conditioning, 
with electricity, with communication systems. Hamas claims it has built over 300 miles worth of tunnels under Gaza. That's longer than the Grand Canyon. Finding these tunnels will be one of Israel's key objectives. Yes, we do have technology that looks underground. We do have spy satellites that can see tunnel systems. But in a country or in an area as densely populated as Gaza, it's hard to distinguish between, for example, a, a sewer tunnel, a water line, and a terrorist tunnel. Middle East expert Gerard Felitti says one method is to target tunnel entrances with airstrikes. But with so many tunnels, there would be no way to get them all. And it's believed there are Israeli hostages in this tunnel network. doesn't appear that there's any other choice but entering uh, physically and going door to door and looking for the entrances to these tunnels and looking for the hideouts. Geopolitical analyst Irina Zuckerman says this may be the only way to find the terrorist leaders, valuable items, and hostages. Doing so would be very dangerous. The tunnels are likely booby-trapped, filled with explosives that can be detonated. It's unknown when the land invasion will begin. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, Israeli forensic teams have uncovered details of abuse and torture from the Hamas terrorist attacks. And Israel's president says Hamas followed an instruction manual. Focusing on the positive in a difficult situation is just one insight shared by people at a March for Israel. Hear what else attendees had to say after this short break. Good to have you back with us. Signs of torture at the hands of Hamas terrorists. Forensic teams in Israel have examined the bodies of victims of last week's Hamas attack on southern communities, and what they discovered was gruesome. And a warning to viewers, some of the following footage and the content of this story is disturbing due to its graphic nature. Forensic teams in Israel have examined victims' bodies from last week's Hamas attack on communities near the Gaza Strip. They found multiple signs of torture, rape, and other atrocities. We've seen dismembered bodies with their arms and feet chopped off. People that were beheaded. A child that was beheaded. Burned bodies. I can't even tell if it's a man or a woman, if it's a child or an adult. Burned to ashes. Rape. Women were raped, even the elderly, even very young, were raped. Yossi Landau, a member of the Israeli non-governmental rescue and recovery organization Zaka, told Sky News about 80% of an estimated 280 bodies, including children, showed signs of torture. The atrocities included burning, rapes, mutilations, and beheadings. At the National Center for Forensic Medicine in Tel Aviv, Teams have already identified more than 500 people out of the 950 bodies brought to the center. We see people without heads. I cannot say now for sure, but we will continue the examination. You know, I to be, we will continue the examination, and then we'll probably have more answers about the reason why these people are beheaded. Maybe it is a missile or something. I, I cannot say because the bodies are charred. The center's leader said they are struggling to identify more victims because there was a high proportion of charred bodies among those still not identified. Israeli President Isaac Herzog told CNN on Sunday about what he saw when he visited a community after Hamas terrorists attacked it. This was found on the body of one of the terrorists. This is a booklet. Okay, this booklet is instruction guide 
how to go into a civilian premises, into a kibbutz, a city, a moshav, how to break in. And first thing, what do you do when you find the citizens? You torture them. This is the booklet. It says exactly how to torture them, how to abduct them, how to kidnap them. More than 1,400 Israelis have died since the latest fighting erupted. The vast majority of them were civilians killed in Hamas's October 7th assault. United in solidarity for Israel, thousands in Philadelphia attended a march and rally bringing a message of peace and prayer. Let's take a look. A march for solidarity with Israel was held in Philadelphia on Sunday. Thousands attended the peaceful event. One attendee made an observation about the need for certain groups to speak out against evil. I believe there are good Muslims out there, many, but unfortunately their voices are not being heard. Their voices need to be louder. We need the Muslims and Arabs of the world to speak up against these evil terrorist groups. Another emphasized the need to spread the truth about the current Israeli-Hamas situation. There's a lot going on in the media right now that is basically fault. So all we can do is just speak up and um, spread the truth. Basically, there's only one truth out there, so people should know it. Some attendees were grateful for the U.S. support of Israel in these troubled times. We want to just express our um, sorrow that so many people were killed in in this attack and uh, we appreciate the United States uh, stepping up and, and standing with Israel and uh, that's basically it just to let people know that we care. So really just support Israel so they can get rid of this, this horrible regime and then afterwards support them to bring everyone together and create peace in Israel. A student who was there during the attacks has some advice on what people can do to help. Well, I think they could just donate to organizations to help find to help find hostages and people who live down south who have no home because they got bombed. And I think since they can't fully do anything if they live in America and they're not soldiers, I think they just they just have to pray for us, for everyone's family, for friends who are going through this hard time, who are the victims of this situation. On Thursday, the Philadelphia City Council is set to vote on a resolution denouncing Hamas while calling for a peaceful resolution to the conflict. Making their voices heard. And you know, some people are saying that this terrorist attack by Hamas is going to actually be a turning point for the West's war on terror. Interesting. Yeah, well, at the same time, I always feel the, feel the need at this point to mention that, you know, we need to keep in mind that these were terrorists, right? As you said, terror. Well, I feel like in the we see in the news now that more and more people are um, targeting Muslim. Not in the news, but um, for instance, the six-year-old boy that was murdered for being a Muslim. Um, people are targeting the Muslim population, which obviously there is a very significant and big difference between these groups. Um, and also, you know, in Israel, there is 21% of the population is Arab community. So, yeah, a clear distinction yeah. is definitely needed there. Absolutely. Um, and with a look at the, uh, the clock, it's 8 o'clock, so we are starting our second part of the broadcast. <music> President Biden is set to visit Israel. What message does it send to Iran and Hezbollah? And what security measures are needed when visiting a war-torn country? We ask an analyst. 
The House of Representatives will vote on the next speaker today. But does Congressman Jim Jordan have enough momentum to get the gavel? We ask House Representatives for their takes. Horrifying new body cam footage released documents the violent attacks carried out by the Hamas terrorist group. Welcome back, and to all of those now joining us, good morning. Good morning, everyone, and we start out with some big news about President Biden. He will make a high-stakes visit to Israel tomorrow as the country battles Hamas terrorists. The trip comes as the House Foreign Affairs Committee is drafting legislation to authorize U.S. military force, quote, in the event it's necessary. After meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the White House says Biden will travel to Jordan to meet with King Abdullah, Egyptian President Sisi, and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. The news of the trip comes as Hamas terrorists now say they have between 200 and 250 hostages. Biden's visit is expected to delay Israel's ground invasion of Gaza. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken discussed the visit on Monday. He remarked on some of the objectives of the trip. Those include reaffirming the United States' solidarity with Israel and its ironclad commitment to Israel's security. Blinken also said the U.S. and Israel have agreed to develop a plan that will enable humanitarian aid to reach civilians in Gaza, including the possibility of creating areas to help keep civilians out of harm's way. President Biden will again make clear, as he's done unequivocally since Hamas's slaughter of more than 1,400 people, including at least 30 Americans, that Israel has the right and indeed the duty to defend its people from Hamas and other terrorists and to prevent future attacks. If Hamas in any way blocks humanitarian assistance from reaching civilians, including by seizing the aid itself, we'll be the first to condemn it and we will work to prevent it from happening again. We welcome the government of Israel's commitment to work on this plan. The president very much looks forward to discussing it further when he's here on Wednesday. Let's open up a discussion on the significance of President Biden's planned trip to Israel. Joining us live is geopolitical analyst and senior editor at 1945.com. He's also the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Brandon Weikert, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What message would a Biden visit to Israel send to Iran and Hezbollah? Well, it shows solidarity with Israel at a time when many in the region thought that former, excuse me, that President Biden was basically not pro-Israel. So it's certainly a powerful statement. Uh, The question is, though, what exactly is going to be said by Biden to these different Middle Eastern leaders? Uh, Will it be truly solidarity or will it be equivocation? And that's the real concern I think many in the Israeli government have is how committed to Israel is the United States leadership at this time. Right. And the sending of aircraft carriers may lend to some of that. Now, how will the Biden administration balance showing its strong support to Israel while also expressing the need to protect civilian life in Gaza? Well, I think they've already done that. They've been indicating that they're going to create these humanitarian corridors. They've basically ensured that our planners have been on the ground with Israeli planners to basically make sure that humanitarian aid will get to to the Gaza Strip 
course, there's a larger issue, and, and this is just my opinion, you know, as terrible as this as it is with civilians being involved, the, the Israelis have a right to defend themselves. And so the idea that Israel, Israel keeps restraining itself because we're pressuring them not to go in too hard um, because of humanitarian concerns, it, it's becoming, I think, a little egregious. If Israel doesn't strike back in some capacity in the next 72 hours, they're going to look weak. And it's going to inspire more violence, my fear is, from Iranian-backed militants. And what do you expect to happen at the meeting in Jordan? I'm sure they're going to be discussing our leadership with the Jordanian leadership, humanitarian issues, how we can avoid a, a real human rights catastrophe occurring in Gaza. Um, I'm sure that the Biden administration is going to try to bring up the possibility of, of getting some of those Arabs in Palestine, the civilians, out of Palestine, uh, Gaza Strip, and into Jordan. Although the Jordanians, the Egyptians, the Syrians, uh, all of the Arab countries around uh, Israel have had almost 60 years to get their co-religionists out of the Palestinian territories, and they refuse to take them on. They've left it up to Israel. So this is part of the problem. Yeah, and we'll see, because he's going to also meet with Egyptian president there, and he's going to ask possibly if Egypt will eventually take some of these refugees. Of course, they did not want Hamas terrorists coming into their country. But what security measures need to be put in place for a U.S. president to go into a war-torn country? Well, uh, there's going to have to be a lot of uh, advanced planning for getting the POTUS there. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time uh, pre a president has gone into a war zone. Remember, George W. Bush famously appeared over Thanksgiving, uh, I think 2003 or four, in Iraq uh, without many people knowing about it, with a reduced security detachment. Biden himself appeared in Kiev right after the, the Russians were repulsed from invading the, the capital of Ukraine. Uh, so there's going to be a series of Secret Service missions, advanced missions, to uh, the places Biden's planning to visit. They're going to coordinate with the Israelis. You'll have that Iron Dome air defense system really active on is in Israel. Uh, you're going to have a, a higher presence of U.S. Secret Service, probably special forces as well, on the ground, in the crowd, keeping an eye on everything with all the exits carefully plotted out. So this, this is probably going to be mostly safe. Um, but it's going to be a very powerful image of the American president standing with the Israeli leadership in war-torn regions. Yes, tons of security needed there. Do you think that Biden's visit will help bring hostages back to the U.S. and into Israel? I do not. And why not? Uh, basically, the Hamas needs those hostages. I don't even believe most of those hostages are still alive. Um, Hamas needs those hostages in order to use as human shields uh, to prevent the Israelis from bringing the full weight of their military force down on Hamas. The goal is to bog Israel down with these machinations to stunt their ability to, to destroy Hamas long enough for what I believe will be the threat from the north, Iranian-backed Hezbollah militants in Lebanon opening up a second front. The longer the Hamas can get Israel to delay, the worse Israel looks, the weaker it looks, and the less inclined the Americans, the Europeans, and the Arabs of the region will be to stand firm with Israel. Great insight from you, Brandon Weikert, geopolitical analyst and author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. The IDF has released 
horrifying body camera footage from a Hamas terrorist killed in the October 7th attacks. The video documents a Hamas killing spree unfolding in an Israeli community. And here is a warning, the following body cam footage is evidence of harrowing war crimes, so viewer discretion is strongly advised. The Hamas body cam footage shared by Israel Defense Forces starts with Hamas terrorists breaching Israel's border fence the morning of October 7th. The video shows a Hamas squad mobilizing for their attack, then violently infiltrating an Israeli community. What unfolds next can be described as pure horror, as squads of terrorists move from house to house, murdering innocent civilians and searching for anyone in hiding. Gunfire is heard as the terrorists stop on a pathway appearing to be confused which direction to head next. A sniper shot rings out. IDF says the terrorist filming was neutralized by Israeli security forces. Israel's health ministry says over 1,400 Israelis have been killed since the war started, with close to 3,500 injured. The Palestinian health ministry has reported at least 2,700 killed and injured close to 10,000 in Israeli airstrikes. Numbers IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conriquez says are authorized by Hamas. Conriquez shared his thoughts on the kind of enemy Israel is dealing with in the next spaces on Sunday. The atrocities that Hamas perpetrated against Israeli civilians on uh, Shabbat, uh, October 7th, shows that this is an organization of subhumans, uh, really people that I don't think qualify as human beings in terms of their morals, the way that they massacred mutilated, raped, burnt, and executed Israeli civilians. Uh, so I don't think that it is beneath Hamas even to kill Palestinian civilians if they think that it will help them in the international uh, arena or to create support uh, or to try to blame Israel. The IDF says Hamas has taken at least 199 hostages and fired over 6,000 rockets at Israeli civilians since the war began. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Well, the White House calls the terrorist attack an act of sheer evil. And uh, for a good reason, I think. I cannot stop hearing um, them talking about those <laughs> mutilated bodies, and uh, it's, it's incredible. And I think one thing to note here is that, um, I give an example, Afghanistan, for instance, since the Taliban took, um, took power, they are not in the statistics anymore when it comes to terror attacks. So these numbers put out by Afghanistan government, I, I would call them in this case then, the Taliban, they officially state that the attacks and deaths in the country has declined by 75%. But um, I guess the statistics don't include, you know, deeds done by the government, oppressive government and things like that. So. Wow. Well, stay with us here. An NTD speaks with a history teacher and mom of three teenage boys who shares her account of the brutal Hamas terror attack on a kibbutz near Gaza. Thousands marched in Philadelphia to support Israel as the war enters its second week. We bring you a report from the event. Good to have you back. Belgian authorities say a gunman suspected of killing two Swedish nationals died after being shot by police this morning. The Belgian Prime Minister says the suspect was from Tunisia and was living in Belgium illegally. He called the shooting a brutal terrorist attack. The suspect called himself an ISIS supporter. 
The two victims killed in the attack were Swedish nationals in town to attend a soccer match. A third victim was wounded in central Brussels. Prosecutors said the alleged attacker mentioned targeting Swedes in the video. The shooting came at a time of heightened security concerns linked to the Israel-Hamas conflict, although prosecutors say there was no evidence the attack was connected to the conflict. The shooting of the suspect came after an intense manhunt throughout the city. The Belgian justice minister said in a news conference that the suspected attacker was known to police in connection with human smuggling. He unsuccessfully sought asylum in Belgium in November 2019. This morning, the EU's foreign policy chief pressed for Europeans to step up their security and defense. And the individual stories of those tragically caught up in the terrorist attack in Israel on October 7th continue to come out. And today's Daniel Monahan spoke with a history teacher who was at home with her husband and three kids when explosions, gunfire, and yelling in Arabic awoke those asleep into a living nightmare. A warning for viewers, the following report contains some disturbing images and testimony. I'm a teacher, I'm a history teacher. Mikhail Rotenberg has resided at Kafar Aza Kibbutz since 2014. The history teacher lives with her husband and three teenage sons. She guides youth delegations to Poland to teach them about the Holocaust. Rotenberg says the Hamas attack was a horrific day for the community she loves. Over 50 dead, including women and children who were murdered. Many were kidnapped, and many are still missing as the process of body identification continues. We have one family's funeral tomorrow. All the family got uh, shot. All five of them, two parents and the three teenagers. There are horrifying uh, pictures from the kibbutz and horrifying stories. The bodies were booby-trapped, that no one will be able to rescue even the bodies. Houses were booby-trapped. When the attack struck early Saturday morning, her family hurried to the safe room. We had to be in the safety room for 20 hours, whispering for each other and uh, holding knives because we are not people of war. We are people of peace, but we have knives in the kitchen. The safe room is one of the rooms. One of my twins live there. He has his bed, his computer, his TV, his closet, his mess. Uh, it's, a it's one of the rooms that we live in. It's a living room. Safe rooms have been required in Israeli homes since 1992, when the country was attacked by Scud missiles in the Gulf War. They can withstand blast and shrapnel from conventional weapons. Rotenberg says the steel windows are designed to be easily opened from the outside to pull people out to safety. That was the problem with the window because the window, it was very easy to the terrorists to open it. So we tied it in a rope, in a regular rope and held it and they held the window. That was very frightening. And we also heard their shooting and uh, bombing, bombing our neighbors. It was very horrifying to sit in the safety room and suddenly hear Allah Akbar. They came to kill. They didn't came to drink coffee on the porch with me. That her family was spared that day, Rotenberg says was pure luck. Terrorists were busy with other houses in the street, burning them down, bombing them with grenades and dynamite, murdering people with their machine guns. 
Rotenberg has no idea what lies ahead for those who lived in the kibbutz. The community, now a military quarantine zone. They talked about about a year, but we really don't know. And all my books are there and my computers and my shoes and my clothes and the whiskey. Rotenberg feels the media tries to portray Israel as a conquering country. We don't want to conquer any, anything. We want to live quietly, safely in our houses. I didn't go to Aza or to other places and did for them something. This is my house, this is my place. My grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. When, he, when his family was taken to Auschwitz and murdered there, he thought that it's because he didn't, has a, he didn't have a country. In 1948, after the war, he came to Israel. He fought in the Liberty uh, War and he built a family here. The history teacher has a warning for Europe and the Western world. I know that someone should take care of the Gaza Strip. I really do. But you can't let uh, terrorists rule you and then cry for help. I really think that it's very important that people, especially in Europe, especially in Western Europe, will try to understand what we are, what we are dealing in with. When they will take Israel, they will come to Europe. Rotenberg hopes to come back to her home one day at the Kafar Aza kibbutz to rebuild and start over. People have put together a fundraiser to help the community to start anew and hopefully to thrive again one day soon. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. United in solidarity for Israel, thousands in Philadelphia attended a march and rally bringing a message of peace and prayer. Let's take a look. A march for solidarity with Israel was held in Philadelphia on Sunday. Thousands attended the peaceful event. One attendee made an observation about the need for certain groups to speak out against evil. I believe there are good Muslims out there, many, but unfortunately their voices are not being heard. Their voices need to be louder. We need the Muslims and Arabs of the world to speak up against these evil terrorist groups. Another emphasized the need to spread the truth about the current Israeli-Hamas situation. There's a lot going on in the media right now that is basically fault. So all we can do is just speak up and um, spread the truth. Basically, there's only one truth out there, so people should know it. Some attendees were grateful for the U.S. support of Israel in these troubled times. We want to just express our um, sorrow that so many people were killed in, in this attack, and uh, we appreciate the United States uh, stepping up and, and standing with Israel. and. Uh, that's basically it, just to let people know that we care. So really just support Israel so they can get rid of this, this horrible regime and then afterwards support them to bring everyone together and create peace in Israel. A student who was there during the attacks has some advice on what people can do to help. 
Well, I think they could just donate to organizations to help find to help find hostages and people who live down south who have no home because they got bombed. And I think since they can't fully do anything if they live in America and they're not soldiers, I think they just they just have to pray for us, for everyone's family, for friends who are going through this hard time, who are the victims of this situation. On Thursday, the Philadelphia City Council is set to vote on a resolution denouncing Hamas while calling for a peaceful resolution to the conflict. On Capitol Hill, House Republicans are preparing to take their vote for House Speaker Public. Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio is the elected nominee, but it remains to be seen if he has the votes to secure the gavel. Jordan picked up support from four holdouts previously opposed to him yesterday. They are Representatives Mike Rogers, Ann Wagner, Ken Calvert, and Vern Buchanan. Jordan is still facing an uphill battle to be elected speaker. He can only afford to lose four Republicans if every member votes. At least six Republicans are expected to vote against him. Jordan sent a letter to his GOP colleagues yesterday calling for unity. He emphasized the need to refrain from internal fighting, saying the party's shared principles outweigh any divisions. NTD spoke with House representatives for opinions on Jordan's chances. I felt good walking into the conference. I feel even better now. It's not going to take 17 rounds. Okay. I think we'll take a very few rounds and probably uh, have Jim Jordan as our speaker in the next two days. His plan last week was that we are going to put forward a, a clean uh, continuing resolution. I, I, I'm still concerned, but I'm prepared to, to put a vote for our nominee. The House Speaker vote starts at noon Eastern time today, so keep an eye out for that. But we have to wrap our, our show now, so we'll keep you updated with the latest information on the war. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.